we agree, Father, with what is going on in heaven, even now, that you are worthy of praise, and that you, Jesus, have a name above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Help us to praise you even now, God, as we look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing here at Cornerstone our sermon series through the book of Revelation. Now chapter 12 is one of these chapters that I've kind of been looking ahead to the whole sermon series and thinking, oh boy, what am I going to do there? Um, Now I would like to remind you that at the beginning of this sermon series, I asked you all the questions, should we do just Revelation chapters 1 through 5 or should we do the entire book? And the overwhelming response was, let's do the entire book of Revelation. And I'm so glad that we've been doing it. It's been, been fun for me. It's been a good study. It's been good for us to focus our hearts in worship. Um, but now we get to chapter 12, and it's, it's a difficult chapter. I would say it's one of the most difficult chapters in the book of Revelation. And Revelation is one of the most difficult books in the Bible. Although if you were to ask me what's the most difficult book in the Bible, I would probably say um, that the second half of the book of Daniel is maybe the most difficult section of the Bible. And and why do I mention that now? Well, it's it's because it's very similar to Revelation. Both Daniel and the Apostle John in Revelation were given visions of the future, of the end. And listen to what Daniel said. At the end of Daniel, in chapter 12, he said, I heard, but I did not understand. And then he asked for an explanation. And the answer given to him, isn't this great? Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the end of time, until the time of the end. So basically Daniel said, I don't get it. And the answer that was given to him was basically, move along. (laughs) Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that it's okay if there are some things about this prophecy that we don't get. Now I would love to be able to come before you today and tell you exactly everything about the 1,260 days that we see in Revelation 12. But you know what? I'm not sure I understand it. And I'm okay with that. Uh, I understand that it very well could be talking about uh, a time in the end. It could also have some repercussions in Israel's past. And I'm just not at all entirely sure how it all works together. But you know what? I'm okay with that. And instead of trying to figure out every little thing about the details of the timing of all this today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 12 of Revelation and try to get the big picture of it. Okay, so my sermon today is going to have three parts. In the first part, we're going to look at the battle between good and evil as as it has played out throughout history as shown in Revelation 12. And then in the second part of my sermon, we'll look at some overall themes of the battle. And then third, we'll talk application for today. Now, Revelation 12 reads almost like a comic book, like a galactic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And its scope ranges from the beginning of creation, or perhaps even before the beginning of creation, all the way until the end times. Okay, so let's read Revelation 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. I don't know all about those horns either, by the way, or the crown. Uh, Verse 4, His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. 
The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So as I said before, we're going to start off our look at Revelation 12 by looking at the battle between good and evil as it has played out throughout human history as we see in Revelation 12. Now let's first take a quick look at the main characters in this battle. First we have God. Okay, I think uh, we don't need to do much explaining there. Second, we have the devil. Now in this chapter, he is called the dragon, the serpent, the devil, the accuser, and the one who leads the whole world astray. Or uh, a translation that I like maybe a little bit better of that in verse 9 is he's called the deceiver. So he's called the deceiver, or the one who leads the world astray, because he wants us not to follow God. He tries to deceive us, to get us to take the wrong path. And he's called the accuser because he accuses us before God. You know that that's what Satan does? He's, he stands before God and tries to slander us that we might somehow not be declared righteous. Okay, that's who he is. And then third we have in this battle the woman. Now I think the best way to understand this woman in this chapter is to see her as representing all of God's people throughout history. Now specifically in verses 1 through 5 she looks like Mary, but I would say that even then it's Mary simply as a representation of, of all of God's people. Because remember, Jesus wasn't just the son of Mary, he's also the, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and so on. So I think that the woman in this chapter represents in general God's people. Uh, the theologian Grant Osborne said that this woman is the persecuted people of God as they wait for their Messiah. I think that's a, a great description. Okay, let's take a look at the battle now. We're going to look at it in five stages. And the first stage of this battle is what I'm calling pre-Genesis 3. Now, I'm not 100% sure on this, um, 
But if I were to write a paper on when and where Satan and his demons fell from heaven, I would probably include Revelation 12.4. I'll just put this one up for you on the screen, talking about how his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, if we don't have some sort of understanding pre-Genesis 3 about what happened, then all of a sudden we come, we're reading our Bible, we're reading the first page and it all makes sense, and then we're reading the second page of our Bible, at least that's the way it is in my Bible. You get to Genesis 3, and all of a sudden there's this serpent there, and you think, well, where did this serpent come from? Well, perhaps Revelation 12.4 gives us a picture of that, a symbolic picture of what happened perhaps before Genesis 3, perhaps even before creation, where Satan and his angels fell. Because remember, uh, there were these angels that, that followed Satan, and they fell, and we would now call them demons. Okay, so whether Revelation 12.4 explains this or not, at some point in time before Genesis 3, Satan rebelled against God. Okay, let's move on now to the second stage of the battle. We'll call this one Genesis 3. In verse 9 of our passage today, it says that the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil. Now that language should remind you of Adam and Eve's encounter with this serpent in Genesis 3. There the serpent tempted Adam and Eve and unfortunately they sinned. They followed the deception of Satan. And as a result, God brought punishment on mankind. You're familiar with this story. It's a punishment that we still feel the effects of today, whether that's in childbearing or whether it's in painful work or in death. We still feel the effects of the punishment in, in Genesis 3. But did you remember also that in Genesis 3, God punished the serpent? Let's read that. In Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, And I will put enmity, or hostility, between you the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This verse prophesied that there would be an ongoing battle between the woman's offspring and Satan. Now, that word offspring can refer to all of us. It, it can refer to all of us as, as children of Adam and Eve, all humanity engaged ongoingly in a battle with Satan, but the word offspring in the Bible, it's the word seed, and it can also take on a singular form in the Bible. And, and singularly then, it refers to Jesus. And in that light, if we look at Genesis 3.15 again, we see that the, the serpent will strike the heel of the offspring of the woman. And most theologians, and I would agree with them here, see in that a foreshadowing of the cross, where Jesus most likely was pierced through the heel by one of the nails of the cross. But, look at Genesis 3.15 again. Because the most powerful blow was not the one delivered by Satan to the offspring of the woman. It says in there, he, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, the head of the serpent. So in that, I see a, a foreshadowing of the cross in which Satan and his powers made it so that Jesus was, was put on a cross and crucified, but Jesus won the victory there. And when I say Satan and his powers, what I mean was that Satan had influence under the, the Roman authorities, under the Jewish leaders, under Judas, and following his lead, they crucified Jesus, but Jesus won the victory there. So if you're looking for a great theological word here, Genesis 3.15 is sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion. Okay? You want to say that one with me? Proto-Evangelion? No, don't say it. Okay. Proto just means first. Evangelion means gospel. So 
the question has been asked to many a theologian, to pretty much every seminarian who's ever gone through seminary, where is the first example of the gospel message in the Bible? And most people go to Genesis 3.15. And I think it's great. When Adam and Eve sinned, uh, there was punishment. That's not the great part. But the great part is that even in that punishment, God foreshadowed victory in the cross. But all that to say, what Genesis 3.15 also shows us, is this battle between good and evil, between the woman and her offspring, and, and Satan. Okay. Um, this battle also continues. If I, I'm just going to show you real quickly the last verse of Revelation 12. talks about the dragon being enraged at the woman, and he went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. So that, that battle in Genesis 3 all the way through uh, Revelation 12. But let's move on to the third stage of the battle now. We're calling it the birth and ascension of Jesus. Now, at Cornerstone, we are becoming known for our nativity scene that we put up here every Christmas now. It's this, this beautiful scene. Uh, uh, an anonymous guy, I won't say who did it, but uh, made some rebar figures, and then we put lights on them. And it's just this awesome nativity scene that lights up Main Street here. But... According to Revelation 12, perhaps we should add another character to our nativity scene. Perhaps we should add a red dragon with, uh, what does it say about him? With seven heads and ten horns. Wouldn't that be great? This beautiful white light. And then we put this red dragon with heads and horns on it and there to devour the baby. Should we do that? Well, this is a... Okay, yeah. It's the Christmas story here in Revelation 12. It's a little bit of a different take on the Christmas story, but it shows us what was happening behind the scenes at Jesus' birth. Satan wanted to devour Jesus the moment that he was born. Now, this reminds me of King Herod's attempt to kill Jesus by killing all babies born in Bethlehem around the time of Jesus' birth. Remember that story? It's in Matthew 2. But what did God do there? He rescued Jesus by sending him along with his parents to Egypt where they would be safe. And then back in Revelation 12.5, I think I've got this up here, yeah, 12.5, we see that Jesus is the one who will rule all the nations and that eventually he was resurrected from the dead and he ascended to heaven. So verse 5 there, within the, the course of one verse, it starts out with Jesus' birth but then goes all the way to his ascension in heaven. Satan wanted to stop those things, but he couldn't. And then let's move on to the fourth stage of our battle, the end times. In verses 7 through 9, we see Satan and his demons fighting against Michael and his angels. But Satan lost that battle, and as a result, he and his demons were hurled to the earth. In verse 12, it says that he then knew his time was short. It's kind of this eerie verse. And then in verses 13 through 17, Satan tried once again to attack the woman, the people of God. He did this by spewing water out of his mouth like a river. But the earth helped the woman, swallowing up that river... She was given wings like an eagle to fly away, again for three and a half years, when it says time, times, and half a time there, it's that same 1260-day period, three and a half-year period. She would fly away to a place where she would be protected. And when Satan realized he couldn't get the woman, it says in verse 17 that he went to make war against the rest of her offspring, uh, possibly referring to the people who would come to know Jesus during the tribulation. So in this stage of the battle, we see that Satan lost his place in heaven. That's what it says in there. Now, is it interesting to think that, that Satan had a place in heaven? Up until the end times there, talking about how Satan had a place in heaven? Well, remember, he is our accuser. And in God's wisdom, God has allowed Satan to accuse us even before God. 
Also, Ephesians 2 calls Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air. It says in that passage that when we follow the ways of evil, we're really following his ways. So yes, Satan has access both, uh, right, right now, Satan has access both to heaven and to earth. It's, and again, it's kind of an eerie thought. But eventually, he will be cast out of heaven, and later on in Revelation, we'll see that he will be assigned to his eternal place of torment in the eternal lake of fire. We have one more stage to look at now, and here I'm going to go out of chronological order. And the fifth stage of the battle that I want to show you is now. Think about this. If the battle with Satan, between Satan and the offspring of the woman, has been going on since Genesis 3, and will continue until the end times, where does that put us now? Squarely in the midst of this battle. That's where we live. In fact, Jesus told us that we should expect trouble in this world. In Genesis, excuse me, John 16:33b, Jesus said, "In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world." Now, what kind of trouble is this that we should expect now? I'd call it spiritual battle. We are told to expect attacks from our enemy, the devil. You can read about this if you want a homework assignment today in the second half of Ephesians 6. It's that famous pa- uh, passage about the armor of God. And we need that armor of God because we're in a battle. And what I would like to tell you about this spiritual battle that we face with our enemy, it is not rare. I think that some Christians just chalk up spiritual battles like those one or two really difficult times in their life. Or something you'd look back at and say, wow, that was really spiritual battle. But you know what I would say? I would say that spiritual battle is very likely an everyday occurrence for us. It talks about in Ephesians 6, the flaming arrows of the evil one, and we're supposed to have the shield of faith with us ready. Not just ready like once or twice in your life. I think on a daily basis, we should be walking around knowing that our enemy wants to deceive us. He wants us to get off the path and to go into the darkness. And it's spiritual battle. Every time we face temptation, it's spiritual battle. So be ready for it. We're told in 1 Peter 5.8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That's where we live now. We're told in the very next verse, though, to resist him and to stand firm in the faith. We're told that our brothers all around the world have experienced these kinds of sufferings. We're told to expect them. But we are to stand firm. We're in the battle now. Okay, let's move on now to the second part of my sermon where I want to show you some themes of this battle. The first theme is up there. We wait for Jesus while enduring trouble. Now, like I already said, Jesus told us to expect trouble in this world. We humans have been facing trouble ever since Genesis 3 and the fall of man. And ever since Genesis 3.15, God's people have waited for Jesus. You can read about how they waited for Jesus in the Old Testament. And as you read the Old Testament, what you'll see is they went through a bunch of trouble. But then eventually Jesus came, right? His first coming, he came, he took our sins upon himself and paid the penalty for us. But we now, after the first coming of Jesus, wait for the second coming of Jesus. And as we wait for the second coming of Jesus, what should we expect? Trouble. Okay? That's where we live. We will face trouble as we wait for Jesus. The reason we face trouble is because we have an enemy. And sometimes the reason that we face trouble is because we make bad choices 
and we follow the ways of our enemy. Anybody here? I want to see a show of hands on this one. Anybody ever cause trouble for yourself by making a bad choice? Okay, I'm going to raise both of my hands on this one. So, Now, make no mistake about it. Jesus will come again. But please also know that as we wait, there will be trouble. But that's not the end of the story. Let's go on to the second theme. God protects his people. So yes, there will be trouble. In Revelation 12, 12, we see that there will be woe on earth because of the fury of the devil. But all throughout this chapter, we see God protecting his people. Three times in this passage, we see the woman taken care of by God in the midst of attack from Satan. Twice it says that she went into the place prepared for her in the desert where she should be taken care of. Now, does that sound strange to you at all, that the woman would be taken care of by God in the desert? Well, do you know what the desert is in the Bible? It's other things, but one of the things that the desert is, it's a place where God meets with his people and cares for their needs. Think about that in Exodus. The people lived in the desert for a while, but what does it say at the end of it? He said, your sandals didn't wear out. I took care of you. What did God do for them in the desert? How did he lead them? cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was with his people. Think about the desert in the New Testament. What did Jesus often do? He often went away, it might say in your Bible, to lonely places to pray. He sometimes went to the desert to do what? To meet with God. To be refreshed by God. So maybe your life feels like a desert right now, but I want you to know that if you're in the desert, that God will still take care of you. And God will still meet with you if you seek him. So what we see here is really God's blessing. It's his provision for his people in the desert. Yes, there is oppression from the enemy, but there's also nourishment and protection from God in the midst of trouble. But even this is not the end of the story. We have more to look forward to in our experience, our our relationship with God, than simply protection in the midst of trouble. The third theme is there is certainty of victory in Christ. We can look forward to the time when there will be no more attacks from the enemy. Right now, we can experience God's protection from those attacks, but eventually we'll be in a place where there won't be any more attacks, and it will happen. It's a certainty. We still wait for the second coming of Jesus, but we know that he will come and he will reign victorious. We're told where this victory comes from in verse 11. It says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That word overcame, it's an important word in Revelation. It reminds us of how we, through what Christ did for us in his death and resurrection, can overcome. Jesus has overcome, and in him we can overcome too, by faith. We get to be on the winning side of the battle. Also in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul asks the question, who will bring any charge against us? And you know what? There's an answer to that question. Who will accuse us? Satan will accuse us, right? But what does Paul go on to say? In Romans 8, we are called more than conquerors. That's the song that we just sang a a little bit ago. More than conquerors. That's what we are in Christ. And that word conquerors in Romans 8 comes from the same word as this word, overcame. Except it has a prefix to it that says that we're we're more than. We're, We're like super conquerors in Christ. There's this battle going on against an enemy that on our own is way too powerful for us. Please know that. That we do not battle against Satan in our own power. Uh, Isn't there a song, all our striving would be losing? 
But if we are in Christ, then we are overcomers. So how do we know if we're with Jesus? Well, in Revelation 12:11, it talks about those who overcome not loving their lives so much as to shrink from death. In that, we see that true people, that true followers of Jesus are people who give their lives to Jesus no matter what comes their way. Even if that's death. So have you put your faith in Jesus like that? Have you given your life to him no matter what comes your way? Whether trouble or difficulty or even death. In Luke 9.24, Jesus was speaking, and he said, For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Have you given your life to Jesus like that? Where you give up your life and you say, It's yours, Jesus. And in doing so, what happens is that you receive life from him. We can't hold on to our own life and expect to keep it. But what we can do is give our lives to Jesus and trust that he will give us life eternal. There's certain victory in him. Okay, let's close out this sermon now by looking at two applications. The first application that I want to look at is worship. And I want to reread for you verses 10 through 12a. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Even though Satan brings woe, we can rejoice because God's good plan is moving forward. And here, among many other places in the book of Revelation, we see worship. The theologian Robert Mount said that throughout Revelation we see sudden outbursts of praise. I love that. He, he said what I've been trying to say all this series is that throughout Revelation we see sudden outbursts of praise. As the story of God's victory unfolds, many times throughout this book we see heaven erupting in praise. And you know what? It shouldn't just be in Revelation or in heaven that we see praise. It should be in our lives too. Even in the midst of difficulty, we should praise God. In fact, let me say something about praising God in difficult times. If you have learned the life lesson of praising God in difficult times, you have learned one of the great lessons of faith. We all go through difficult times, right? Yet we would also say that God is always worthy of worship. Now, it's good and right to, play, to praise God when he blesses us, but how do you do at worshiping God when difficult times come your way? Have you learned to trust in God in whatever circumstance? Have you learned that even if, or maybe especially if, you're going through something really difficult, that one of the best things, maybe the best thing that you can do is to turn to God in worship and praise him as the one who is in control, the one who is victorious, the one who loves you and will take care of you. Faithful followers of Jesus have learned that lesson. And, and I just want to say, I know that some of you have gone through difficult times, and for those of you that have learned to praise God in the midst of those difficult times, I want to say to you, well done. And keep up the good work. Now, some 
may not have learned that lesson yet. It's a difficult lesson. So let me, let me just ask some questions. What happens in your life when things don't go your way? Do you get bitter? Or angry? Or depressed? Do you resign? Do you forget that God is in control? Do you try to take control? Or, when difficult times come your way, do you trust that God is in control and you worship Him? Let's be people who always worship God. We've been told the end of the story here. Eventually, Satan is cast into the eternal lake of fire and we, God's people, get to be with Him forever. In light of that, we can face what comes our way now. There, I think it's the Apostle Paul that in 1 Corinthians, I might have to be checked on that one, but talks about our light and momentary troubles achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Do you know that when you go through difficult times that God is worthy of worship? Let's follow this example in Revelation. Let's be worshipers of God. And then finally, my second application today, obey God and hold on to Jesus. The last verse of Revelation 12 reminds us that Satan will continue his attacks until the end. But it says, who is he going to attack? It says he'll attack those who obey God's commandments and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Even in the midst of that attack, we should be people who obey God. Did you know that obedience isn't just something that God wanted in the Old Testament? I've been told, and I, I, I would certainly believe this, that there are actually more commands in the New Testament than there are laws in the Old Testament. So in that sense, our obedience to God should be ratcheted up. God wants us to obey Him. Here's what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. I was reading in my devotional times this week and it, there was a passage where it talked twice about people who honor God or honor Christ. Do you want to be a person who honors Christ? If so, obey Him. And if you want to obey Him, what should you do? Get to know His Word. That means reading His Bible. That means coming to a sermon and listening. Because, not just because the speaker is so good or whatever, or so bad, I've... I've been in bad sermons and learned good things from God. I have a quote. I may have preached bad sermons, but I have never preached bad scripture. So, uh, think about that one. We should so desire to want to honor Jesus that we would eagerly seek to get to know him more and more so that we can obey him and continue to honor him. I hope that's a pattern of your life. And then also from Revelation 12, 17, we are to hold on to the testimony of Jesus. That means remaining faithful to him, being a witness for him. The word testimony means witness. Now we, who have been to church many years in our lives, we've heard many truths about Jesus. And yes, we should believe them, but we should also live them out in this world as we shine as lights, as we're witnesses. And perhaps even within this word also is the idea of potential martyrdom even if it comes to death. Let's be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Let's hold on to Jesus. Now, if you haven't yet received Jesus, that's where you need to start. Put your life in his hands right now. You can enter into an eternity-long relationship with him by faith right now. But from there, for those of us who know Jesus, let's obey God and let's hold on to Jesus until he comes. 
And all the while, let's remember to worship God because he is always worthy of worship. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for telling us this story of this battle. But God, we thank you that you are the victor, that we see victory in the cross, we see victory in Satan's defeat, we see victory in our lives as we place our faith in Jesus and continue to hold on to him and obey you, God. As we trust in you, God, I pray that we would worship you, that we would give you the glory that you deserve. Heaven was told to rejoice in this passage, and I pray that we too would rejoice, God, as we think about who you are and what you do to rescue us and to give us life. So we praise you, God, for this very good plan to win the victory and to include us in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.